1: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent, and Jill Plimmer, our infrastructure correspondent. We're also joined from New York by our correspondent there, Alistair Gray, and also Greg Mayer. This week, we'll be discussing competition on the UK high street in terms of retail banking, Also, a look at cyber risks and has the city finally woken up to it? And finally, a look at Goldman Sachs and how it's dominating the gas market in the US. First, though, to that topic of competition... Emma, you've just come back from the Competition and Markets Authority where the CMA has come up with some very hard-hitting recommendations or they've made them sound hard-hitting, but actually is anything changing?
2: Well, that's right. They've spent the past two years investigating the competition or should I say lack of competition in the UK retail banking market Under an investigation that's cost about £5 million, they came out with provisional findings at the end of last year which suggested that the market's dominated by the big four banks and that very few people are actually switching current accounts and therefore perhaps there's a lack of competition. So today's all about the CMA proposing remedies to help solve this and they've come up with three key ideas. The top one is arguably them suggesting a cap upon unauthorised overdraft fees. So there have been lots of comments this morning sort of congratulating the watchdog on this move. Having just been at a press conference, it transpires that this is an an industry-wide cap, but rather it's just forcing banks to let everyone know what their maximum charge is on unauthorised overdrafts and to make clear what their charges are. The other two key issues are improving and creating comparison websites so people can see... What are the best deals out there for current accounts? And the other one is something called Open APIs, which is with regards to bank sharing customer data with their permission to third parties to help boost services such as comparison sites.
1: But that last one as well is not all it seems because that would have been forced upon the banks anyway by new regulations. Is that right?
2: That's correct. So the Payment Services Directive 2, which is rather catchily named, uh, European-wide regulation, which is coming into force next year, part of it's already underway. A lot of the banks are already working on this now, as are other companies, in terms of how they can open up their APIs so that customer data can indeed be shared to allow even retailers, for example, to give their customers ways of checking their bank balance and transfer history and that sort of thing on, say, a retailer's mobile app.
1: So, the banks can certainly breathe a sigh of relief that this is far from a, a shakeup that some might have hoped for or expected. How does that fit in with the history of shakeups in the competitive landscape in banking, Caroline?
3: In the sense that it's a bit of a damp squib, I'd say it's entirely consistent. In the last decade, the UK antitrust authorities have tried to tackle elements of the banking sector about three times. Think of PPI, there was then the saga over overdraft charges, which the legacy Office of Fair Trading tried to bring. That was a very long and drawn out court case and it ended in victory for the banks. However, it did also lead to there becoming more transparent terms within contracts. And also, if you think about PPI and the great impact that that has had in recent years, it was really the antitrust authorities that first put PPI on the map. And it was then the financial regulator that took it up.
1: Yeah, interesting historical point there. But in terms of going forward from here, Jill, can I bring you in on this point? Because you had a very interesting story the other day about G4S, the well-known outsourcing company, which actually seems to be keen to collaborate with multiple banks, arguably restricting competition further, I suppose. Tell us exactly what they're proposing.
4: Well, G4S is talking to banks at the moment, hoping to establish high street branches, or mobile banking units which would store cash and handle deposits and customers from any bank would be able to go in and do their banking at a G4S unit.
1: So the idea is I suppose this could expedite the exit of multiple banks from high streets in smaller towns and villages.
4: That's absolutely right. They say that banks want to close more branches. They've already closed 600 in the past year in Britain and they think they could fill that gap.
1: So, Jill, does that mean, though, that, you know, we've got one outfit on the high street and competition is further restricted then?
4: No, because customers will still be members of their bank. They will still be clients of the bank. They'll simply do some of their banking in this sort of white label high street bank.
1: Okay, And Emma, a final contextualisation of that from you. How does this fit into the broader development of banking?
2: Well this is part of a wider trend of UK banks cutting costs and a major part of this is essentially closing branches and instead they're also noting that most of their customers, or at least a high proportion of their customers, are now increasingly turning to mobile banking. So they're saying that they're closing branches partly to cut costs and also to serve customers who are turning to mobile.
1: OK. Let's move on to our second topic for the day. Cybercrime, cyber risk, it very much seems to be a theme that's in the wind at the moment. Martin, you had a story about City UK, the City of London lobby group, wising up to the risks in this area among various initiatives that are going on this week. Tell us quickly about what the City UK's conclusions were.
4: Their conclusion is that the financial services sector in the UK is not taking this risk seriously enough and then more needs to be done. And they're proposing setting up some kind of forum to encourage at board level financial services firms, big and small, to share more information, to cooperate and to invest more in this area because there's a shortage of talent. So they need to use apprentice schemes. They need to use work placements. They need to invest in the technology. They need to build up expertise and they need to make sure that they're covered. Interestingly, I spent the morning at this City UK conference that was co-sponsored by Marsh, the insurance brokers, and the CEO of Marsh Limited, the UK arm of the global insurance broker, said that 50% of financial services CEOs that they surveyed thought they had cyber insurance. And only 10% of them, when Marsh checked the actual insurance policies, actually did. So that's pretty striking, I think sort of shows the kind of level... Of preparedness. So, if there was a massive cyber attack that brought down part of the UK financial services sector, which is not beyond the realms of possibility, let's face it, then there would be a massive fight between those affected. And their insurance companies will probably end up in court but with hundreds of millions of pounds possibly at stake because there's such confusion as to who's covered, what's covered. And just to sort of mention the latest kind of attacks that have surfaced into the public arena, it's to do with the SWIFT payments network and banks in Asia being hacked into and having money transferred. We saw this happen to the Bangladesh Central Bank. Money was transferred via the SWIFT system out of the banking system to. Philippine casinos. They tried to get a billion dollars, only got 81 million, we think. But they found another case of the same technique being used at a bank in Vietnam. And I think there have been several other cases as well of a similar types of attacks. So the hackers out there are using the same methods and going after different banks. It's really important for banks to be joined up and talking to each other in order to prevent that kind of thing happening.
1: As you say, that's interesting that that's a key recommendation from this new report, but also suggests, I suppose, that that's not happening to date because of, I guess, concerns about competitiveness and USPs and so on.
4: Well, there's three big reasons. The biggest one, I think, is reputational risk. These institutions, not just banks, but all financial institutions are terrified that if they put their hand up and say, even in closed door communities, that they've had a cyber attack and they've lost data or they've lost money, then it will leak out somehow and customers will hear about it. There'll be a panic and they'll lose lots of customers and maybe even be sued. And reputational risk is massive here. Two other reasons. One is customer privacy, so the data itself. There's concern that actually sharing details of data being stolen or taken, or what kind of data and whose data it was, might breach customer privacy rules. And finally, there's competition concerns that if banks get together and share loads and loads of information, it might be seen as anti-competitive because it could be considered a kind of cartel of data sharing.
1: Now, the extent to which the world is worried about this, Caroline, is reflected also in cyber being considered a potential systemic risk, isn't it? I know the US authorities are over in London actually right now to talk about this. Very concern.
3: Yeah, so I think we'll be hearing a bit more on the substance of this in the coming days. But there's something called the Global Cyber Alliance, which is an initiative set up by the New York District Attorney Cyrus Vance and the City of London Police. And it's a bit of a talking shop. But as we've touched upon, part of the problem with mitigating cyber attacks is that best practice is rarely shared. There's no one common global talking shop that can get everyone around the table. So this is a a good first step. They've already... Put out what they considered. The four most pressing threats within the cybersecurity landscape, and that's phishing, which I think we're all probably quite aware about, weak authentication mechanisms, vulnerable websites, and then denial of service attacks. Again, something I think we've probably all read about. So there's going to be a bit more detail, I think, coming out about what exactly they're going to do going forward. But I would put that in the context of policymakers at central banks becoming ever aware about the cyber threat. The Bank of England, for instance, it's worried about attacks on the bank itself. So they do things like ethical hacking of its own systems. The staff there have all been made aware of increasingly sophisticated phishing attacks through the use of social media, for instance. So you get a bespoke email sent to you that looks legitimate and, in fact, contains malware. But also, obviously, with their supervisory hat on, what banks and financial institutions are doing. And cyber forms part of a bank's operational risk and what the Bank of England's Prudential Regulation Authority has said is that if they think that banks don't have tight enough cyber security defences then they can add extra capital within the pillar 2b bucket to mitigate against that risk.
1: Okay well it's clearly a a fast developing area of risk and maybe reassuring to know that the authorities are at least part way on top of things. Let's move on to the third topic for the day. Do you get your gas from Goldman Sachs? That is the question that some people will be asking in the US. The US bank has emerged as one of the biggest traders and sellers of gas in the US market. Greg Mayer, our commodities correspondent, has been talking to Alistair Gray about this development.
5: Goldman Sachs has been expanding in their natural gas business. The Wall Street Bank has surpassed Chevron and ExxonMobil to join the ranks of the largest merchants in North America. Greg Mayer, my colleague, brought the story, and he joins me now. Greg, just how important has Goldman become in this?
0: Well, in natural gas marketing in North America, they're ranked as number seven now, having not even been on the lists compiled by industry publications like Natural Gas Intelligence several years ago. Last year, they bought and sold 1.2 trillion cubic feet of gas in the U.S. alone. That's according to their latest filing with a federal regulator, energy regulator. That's equal to about a quarter of total residential gas consumption in the U.S., and it's more than twice the volumes that they bought and sold just two years ago.
5: Uh, It's not the first thing that pops into your head when you think of a Wall Street investment bank. So why are they doing this?
0: That's a really good question, and I think that's what makes this so fascinating. Most people sort of have a vision of banks as making loans and structuring investments and that kind of thing, and they think of energy companies or commercial companies as doing things like buying and selling gas. Goldman has long had one of the strongest if not the strongest commodities franchise on Wall Street. They purchased J. Aaron, which is an old commodities trading house in 1981. It's been a profit center for the bank over the decades. Many of the most prominent senior executives at Goldman came from J. Aaron including Lloyd Blankfein the chief executive. And they've said publicly that they are committed to their commodities business as many of these other banks have second thoughts about commodities. Goldman is thought to be sort of the last man standing in in commodities, and I think their growth of their natural physical and natural gas business is evidence of that.
5: So, there, as you say, the sort of rivals, J. P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, for example, being scaling back here. So, I, I wonder why uh, what it is Goldman sees that they don't.
0: Yeah, I mean, you have seen a number of the other Wall Street banks scaling back or exiting physical commodities. And just to make the distinction, we talk about physical commodities as opposed to commodities generally. By physical commodities, I mean buying and selling, moving, handling actual stuff. So it's you know molecules of gas in pipelines or barrels of oil in pipelines or in tankers or cargos full of Aluminum or aluminum, as my colleagues say here, uh, or copper, as opposed to commodities, which can also generally, which can mean derivatives, futures, contracts, that kind of thing, which most of the banks, if not all the banks, are still heavily exposed to. So many of the other banks, yeah, they they have gotten out of physical commodities. JP Morgan sold its physical commodities business to a trading house called Mercuria uh, a few years ago. That included a huge natural gas book. Bank of America had bought a big uh, energy trading business. About 10 years ago, and it's sort of been very much reducing the natural gas, physical natural gas trading aspect of its business now, you know, I think Goldman sees an opportunity in being one of the one of the only banks remaining in this space. And in the regulatory landscape, there's scrutiny of banks' involvement in physical commodities. Perhaps they know something we don't about, you know, how gas will, will, will fare when this review by the Federal Reserve um, is finalized. They have made the argument that, you know, in terms of liability, something like gas—if if gas blows up in a pipeline or something—that's really the liability goes to the pipeline company, not to the shipper, not to the owner of the molecules on the pipeline. So, should the
5: incumbents in this area, the likes of BP, Shell, be worried?
0: I I don't think so. I mean, the BP and Shell are very big marketers, but that's also because they're they're very big producers. So. In their case, those those energy companies, some of the gas that they're marketing is gas that they pulled from their own wells. Goldman is not an energy producer; they're not they're not an oil and gas company. They're, they're strictly a a merchant or a trader in between the producers and the customers, which may be power plants or utilities or factories. And to that extent, uh, BP and Shell. I mean, certainly they would have another competitor in in a very competitive market. Um, but it also means more liquidity in that market, and um, that might help them in terms of their upstream activities.
5: And what does Gold- Goldman's interest in this business tell us about the industry um, and how profitable it is?
0: Well, it's interesting. I mean, the natural gas market in North America is is oversupplied, and you've seen prices of gas just collapse over the last almost a decade now, several years. Volatility is also, for the most part, Kind of drain from this market because there is so much supply. There's just not as many moments where you have a real kind of tightness or tight supply-demand balance. But looking ahead, um, we're seeing lots of coal-fired power plants retiring, liquefied natural gas starting to be exported from the the lower 48 U.S. states, and so there is a lot of gas around. But there's more gas demand uh, growing ahead, and there's also uh, the pipelines are sort of changing direction. So there there are all kinds of interesting trading opportunities. And merchant merchandising marketing opportunities, I think, in, in the years ahead. So, you know, Goldman has definitely made some money as I as I wrote my story on, on certain specific deals. They they didn't have a great quarter in commodities overall in the first quarter, but I think it could be you know if they're allowed to remain in this space, it could be quite interesting.
5: So it's a, it's actually a, a real question about whether they are regulators will actually allow them to carry on doing this.
0: Well, the the Fed, the Federal Reserve, which which has since 2008 overseen Goldman when it became a regulated bank holding company. Um, they are conducting a review of banks' involvement in physical commodities. They're expected to come out with a proposed rule, new rule on this sometime, but no one knows exactly when. It's It's been taking quite a long time. From what we've reported previously, the Fed's considering new capital charges on banks' commodities holdings that would sort of account for the potential risks of a catastrophic accident, like a tank or a tanker spill or a or something like that. I don't think the Fed is going to push the banks out of this. It's a question of whether they could make it make it too costly to to remain in the business. And we'll just have to wait and see what the Fed, you know, if the if the Fed proposes something and if so what.
1: Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Caroline, Emma, and Jill here in London and also Alistair and Greg in the US. Also thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com/banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye.